This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. My name is Peter Elliott from Vancouver, British Columbia, a retired dean, currently working as a coach and a teaching at Vancouver School of Theology. And we're continuing in our exploration of Rodgers and Hammerstein. I'm thrilled to say that today we have a very, 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 very special guest uh, to talk about Allegro. And so I want to welcome my dear friend, the beloved Dean of Trinity Cathedral, Portland, and musical theater queen, Nathan LaRude. I'm to you, Nathan. delighted Hi. to be here as a guest on my very own <laughs> podcast. It's a little, <laughs> is it, what do we call this? Slightly masturbatory, but we're, we'll, we'll just go ahead and get away with it. For about two seconds there, Peter, I thought, oh, maybe I should pretend to be Richard Rogers. Then realized, yeah, I can't do that. When I was a fifth grader, so this is a little kind of a little off topic but when I so my my love of Rogers and Hammerstein goes back to fifth grade I we had to do a big kind of end of the year project on a person who had lived in the 20th century and it was a way to kind of get us into contemporary archives and how do you do kind of you know research a living person or somebody who's just recently died and so I chose Richard Rogers and it culminated in this thing called Night of the Notables so fifth grade me had to play Richard Rogers <laughs> For about a four hour, you know, parent thing, the parents would come, they would interview everybody and ask you questions, to try to guess who you were. Um, so I actually have been Richard Rogers at, at, as a 10 year old. <laughs> and <laughs> how did it go? Uh, you were I remember it went brilliant. really well. I, I remember like because pe people mostly were able to guess who I was like, you know, they pe Richard Rogers was well known enough. So that that felt good. People were like excited to kind of identify who I was. And then I got to geek out with people about Oklahoma. So I've been doing this now. <laughs> For nigh on 30 years. <laughs> and I don't, yeah, I don't even want to ask what year that was. That, that was, yeah. Me... It was actually, it was 1993. It was the, it was the, it was a big anniversary year for Oklahoma. Yeah, that's not to make anybody feel ancient, but yeah, 1993. And uh, I, I don't remember what, 50th, 60th anniversary, whatever of Oklahoma. So there was a bunch of commemorative Oklahoma stuff that came out that year. It was a great year to be doing Rogers and Hammerstein. And I fell in love with the music of Richard Rogers, and here we are. And that was later. that was the year before I became. Yeah. You give a little bit of encouragement to a little Cooper, queer kid, so. and this is what happens. <laughs> oh man! Well, well, well. So Allegro. So we have covered in our conversations about Rogers and Hammerstein to date the the big five. Should we call them that? In order, I that we did them, and I think we did them in chronological order: Oklahoma, Carousel. South Pacific in a number of ways, their big, big hit, The King and I, and then The Sound of Music, which of course is a legend in its own time. And in between Carousel and South Pacific, if I have my sequence right, Rodgers and Hammerstein collaborated again with Agnes DeMille, mm -hmm. who had choreographed the ballet in Oklahoma and choreographed uh, Carousel. In this new play, uh, a fresh invention of theirs, not based on anything else, with Agnes DeMille both choreographing and directing. Yep. And she was difficult to work with, apparently. Yeah, apparently uh, she that's... was a disaster. But yeah, <laughs> but a groundbreaking th that had never really been done. A director choreographer right. was not a thing. Now it's right. Like that's a right. Fosse Gower champion. We think of some of the great directors were choreographer directors in the Broadway tradition. But that had not happened before. You'd never had a choreographer direct a show. Agnes DeMille. I think it was also one of the first times that a woman had directed a commercially 
uh, viable Broadway show. That was also an, a very unusual choice. So she was a trailblazer in all kinds of ways and also apparently a horror to work with. Great with the dancers. Great with the dancers. Sondheim, yeah. terrible Miserable with the, with the, actors. And the actors. And they chose to mount something. I guess they had some money in the bank, uh, probably both well, they were and... they were producers as well. We haven't really talked about this side of Rodgers and Hammerstein, but you know they, they produced Annie Get Your Gun with Irving Berlin. They produced Life with Father with Russell and Crouch, who later wrote the book to Sam. To, they were very successful commercial Broadway producers and also wrote their own shows. So this interesting, you know, like these are guys who know the commercial market. They know what sells, and they have a lot of their own money invested in. I mean, Broadway is a commercial. It's their living. It's it's a commercial enterprise for the both of them. And they're also artists over here. And especially with Allegra, I think, you know, really seeking to advance the art form in ways that are not often commercially successful. And in some ways, that tension lies at the heart of Allegro, actually. This question about what do you do when you achieve an incredible kind of success that ends up kind of taking you away from your first love, the thing that actually brought you into that line of work in the first place. So Allegro is a very personal story for Oscar Hammerstein. He was the one that kind of said, I really want to do this kind of twisted Dick Rogers arm, like, hey, we're going to do this. Dick Rogers, I probably said, like, this is, it's not going to make any money. Nobody's going to want to see it. This is way too out of the box. You, you owe me a favor, dude, which several years down the line would become me and Juliet, their other kind of forgotten show. That was Dick Rogers is like, I just want to do a pure musical comedy. I don't want to say anything. I don't want a message show. I just want to entertain people. So that was their deal, right? Like you get to do a show, Oscar, so that I get to do a show later on. Neither of those shows are successful. Both of them are pretty well re relegated to the dustbin of history. But they did have that little... Although Allegro ran nine months or so yeah. on Broadway. I mean, there's not so many flop. shows that open and close. It's not a flop. Yeah, very respectable Some Broadway, of the critics right? loved it. Made had the had the largest advance sale of any show that had ever been produced on Broadway. And that's I mean, you know, following up on Oklahoma and Carousel, right? Like they, you know, right. everybody was ready for their for their next show. So, you know, I think it was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, which I mean, you know, this is like four, four, four bucks a ticket. That's astounding. So they had already I mean, like the show was already assured a commercial success before it opened. They, they I don't think they lost money on it, but it did not. You know, it was certainly not the phenomenon that Oklahoma and Carousel became. And it was huge. It had a number of dance sequences in it, a whole separate sort of dancing ensemble who came with it. It had lots of scene changes and uh, probably most interestingly to me, and you know lots more about this show than I do. I've only been reading up about it and watching a couple presentations that you kindly forwarded me that we should put in the notes about with the podcast. Yeah, we will. We um, will. A Greek chorus. So Allegro is generally regarded as the first concept show. Uh, people who know kind of Broadway stuff will know what that means. Stephen Sondheim is famous for his concept shows. And it, it became associated with uh, a, n a number of writers in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, kind of moving away from plot-driven shows to shows that were about, in some ways, an idea, right? So you think about Company, Stephen Sondheim's well-regarded well show, Company, which doesn't really have a plot, right? Like, I mean, it's about right. it's about marriage. It's about Bobby. It's about getting old. Um, it's, it's a about bunch of vignettes in a lot of It's a of bunch ways. of vignettes, yeah. yeah. But there's not, a, there's not a through line to the story. Right. Um, and in many ways, Allegro is, I mean, there is a, there is a through line to the story. The, the conceit of Allegro is, uh, Oscar Hammerstein said, I want to tell the story of a man's life from birth to death. 
And Richard Rogers says, well, can I negotiate you down to how about birth to 35, which, you know, is basically <laughs> death. So uh, maybe in 1947, oh, oh, they were like, <laughs> I just turned 38. So I'm sort of like, <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling, a little, I'm feeling, yeah. I'm feeling that pinch a little bit. But yeah, that was that was the that was the compromise. Mm -hmm. We want to tell the story of a man's life from birth to midlife crisis, I suppose we might say. But yeah. not it was not about here's the story we want to tell. It was more about here's the concept that we want to bring to stage. And it included this kind of this idea of bringing a Greek chorus on stage, almost in this sort of like, I think what Hammerstein wanted to do was to tell a kind of quasi mythical story, a story with stakes, right? A story about that had echoes of Greek theater to it, a story about a, a great hero, a king, except that it was a pedestrian guy who had been born in the Midwest and grows up to become a doctor in Chicago. So in some ways, sort of like, you know, what is this death of a salesman, our town, yeah. elevating our the town. common man's experience to the level right. of great art. It is that uh, a guy, a doctor from Chicago is just as worthy of a Greek chorus as is Oedipus the King. So that's kind of the conceit of the show. So big cast, but also experimental in the sense, as I've read about it, in that it it wasn't a big set. Uh, yeah. Although there were big set pieces. There were thinking pieces. more about projections and... Uh, projections uh, and light cues. It had more light cues than any other show had had. I think it was 500 light cues in Allegro. So for by comparison, wow. Hamilton has 750 or 800. So, you know, like that's a contemporary show with all the bells and whistles, right? Allegro's right, right up there in terms of its equipment. And, you know, that's 60 years ago. So a very uh, scenically progressive show. And, and there again, I mean, Hammerstein's idea was he wanted it to be very much influenced by Thornton Wilder's Our Town, right? I want this to be able to be produced by community theaters, by colleges, by high schools all over the country. So it's not a set-driven show. It's a, you, could, you, can do, you can do Allegro with about 12 actors in a barn, or you can do it as they did with 99 actors, dancers, and 500 light cues on Broadway. But the idea was yeah. it was meant to be kind of every man's theater. I think that's what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. And the, the plot kind of, I mean, similar in some ways to Merrily, they, we roll along the, the Stephen Sondheim show, kind of three main characters, as I sort of get it, one girl, two guys. Yes, yeah, um, sort of. It's, I, I mean, so this is where Allegro begins to fall apart. The concept really drives the thing, you know, so like the, the second act really is about two guys and a girl. I mean, the second act basically is Merrily We Roll Along in a lot of ways. I mean, you see why you see why Cameron McIntosh said to Stephen Sondheim, your whole career is just you trying to fix the second act of Allegro and no other show more than Merrily We Roll Along, which basically is in many ways Allegro with a very kind of different set of conceits. But that that woman character who enters in the second act doesn't is not a part of the first act at all. I mean, she becomes a really critical character in the second act. But, you know, so a, a lot of the big the big numbers in Allegro are sung by characters you never see again. I mean, there's no mm. sort of, you know, like the, the big kind of first act number is there's this love song that is sung by a woman named Beulah, who he's on a date with. And then she sings her song. It's a great, like, We Have Nothing to Remember So Far, which is a song that gets excerpted every once in a while by cabaret artists. It's a beautiful little song. We, we're so young. We're so new at this. We have no memories. We're coming to this fresh. It's a beautiful love. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of Rodgers and Hammerstein, not quite love duet. Right. And Conditional then, love song. So she sings the big love ballad of the first act, and you never see that character again. Like, she's just hmm. gone. Like, she's a completely incidental character. We've just begun to Lucky we are, so we have nothing to remember so far, so far. 
gentleman is a dope, a man of many faults, a clumsy Joe who wouldn't know a rumble from a waltz. The gentleman is a dope and not my cup of tea. Why do I get in a dither? He doesn't belong to me. The gentleman isn't bright. He doesn't know the score. A cake will come, he'll take a crumb and never ask for more. The gentleman's eyes are blue. But little do they see Why am I beating my brains out He doesn't belong to me Emily comes in in the second act to sing The Gentleman is a Dope, which is probably the best-known song from Allegro. It's a great number, and she kind of becomes the catalyst for the main character's midlife crisis, if you like. Right. Um, but she walks in, you know, the first scene of the second act, you've never seen this character before. So there's there's no real, there's not a story here. It's not a particular There's nothing well. for the audience to focus on. No. There's no and Joe, kind of the main, dramatic the main, there's no dramatic arc. And the main character has, I think, like one song, but he doesn't, you know, like he's not the center of his own life in, in a really interesting right. way, right? Like the show is really about the chorus. And Joe is this kind of, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's very much like company in that sense, right? Like, who is Bobby and company, right? Like, you can, if you have a really charismatic actor, you can make hay with that. But Bobby's watching all these other, all these other couples go about their business. Stephen Sondheim, trying to fix Allegro, right, does learn from the experience of Rogers and Hammerstein, the failure of Allegro, and gives Bobby the 11 o'clock number, which I think is why company works. Right. At the end of the night, Bobby sings being alive, and you, you connect with this character, you connect with the story. Right. Joe doesn't get that moment. He gets no 11 o'clock number. He doesn't get an I Want song. He doesn't have any he has a kind of silly little love duet with the woman who becomes his wife and she's kind of a she's a hard character in some ways but he doesn't really he doesn't sing he doesn't really have big numbers so it's hard to connect emotionally with this character or with this story because all the good all the good numbers are given to throwaway characters yeah i um remember hearing sondheim interviewed about uh passion mm -hmm. and how many times they had to work on on that show in order for the audience to believe that this sort of disfigured, uh, deformed, uh, disabled person, I uh, apologies if I've offended anyone with any of those categorizations, could be in love with this handsome, right. sexy soldier. And it was finally one song, as I seem to recall Sondheim talking about it, that gave her enough motivation that the audience could accept um, and I guess what that brings to mind is the the role of the audience and the audience's imagination in whether or not musical theater succeeds or doesn't succeed. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Allegro was an attempt to move the art form forward, I think, in, in ways that are not unlike what they had done with Oklahoma and Carousel, right? So, like, Oklahoma is a little bit of a gamble. Our audience is going to accept this way of doing theater and it pays off in spades like people are absolutely right. but what works about oklahoma is the innovation there is dance and song tell the story of these characters in ways that we i mean are not unprecedented showboat had done that it's not the first time that's happened but really make that commercially viable right people find a a song I was thinking about this the other day lonely room from oklahoma right like which is not the song that anybody remembers from oklahoma Right. Kind of astounding, actually. I was trying to think of like, is there another example of a show prior to Oklahoma that has a song like Lonely Room, 
which is not it's not popular. It's not hummable. It's not a love song. It's never going to get recorded by Frank Sinatra and be on the radio. It's a dark, complicated, creepy character song. Right. That's right. like that's not really a thing that Broadway audiences yeah. had. That, that opera, I suppose, like they're you know like character song, villain songs. But you're not meant to laugh at Lonely Room. Lonely Room is about like taking you deep into the psychosis of a messed up guy. So right. like this, this is what Roger Hammerstein are capable of, right? And so with, with Allegro, it's like, you know, I, I think what, where, where Allegro misses the mark is the innovations are around set design, they're around dance, but they're, they've lost this kind of, the songs in Allegro do not move the plot along. They don't connect right. to character. They're set pieces. It's a concept musical in that sense. The songs comment on the action, often by the chorus. Often it's a chorus singing about what they're seeing. But the songs, by and large, there's a couple except The Gentleman is a Dope is actually, a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good character song in some ways. It's also a really clever lyric that, that sells and works commercially. The songs don't advance the plot and they don't connect you to the characters. And that's why right. Oklahoma and Carousel work. Um, right. Because you connect emotionally to these characters. Yeah, they immediately engage the audience. I mean, yeah. the, the character of Judd immediately engages yeah. the audience because yeah. he is... They've they've loaded so much evil into him or or mystery or sexuality or some combination of all of that in the same way that Billy Bigelow, yeah. even though you you hate him and despise yeah. him, but kind of love him. In your After own way. he sings soliloquy, it's like, I mean, you know, like, yeah, we can we can sit back with our 21st century and be like, oh, that's a fucked up dude. But I mean, it <laughs> he, you get so far inside what makes this man work. That's that's where yeah. that's where yeah. musicals work. When when somebody bursts into song, you're getting a kind of um, almost a kind of vulnerability of humanity that you you just don't get in a dramatic monologue. I think that is why Roger, the best of Roger Hammerstein, like that's why it works. And Allegro is just, it's a very hard, it keeps you at a distance, very deliberately. It keeps the audience out there in, in the, the on the other side of the proscenium arch. It does not invite right. you into the lived experiences of these, of these characters. So it's an interesting, right. it's a fascinating show. It's very experimental. It's very ahead of its time. In some ways, I think it's, you know, like I, I expect that contemporary productions of, Oklahoma, of, of Allegro would probably succeed where in 1947 people were like, like, where's the where's the farmer and the cowhand should be friends? Like, where's our big dance number? Like, come on, you guys. Um, because right. because we're much we, we have a different kind of framework for experimental theater. John Doyle did a revival in New York in 2000, I don't know, 14 or 15. Uh, you know, he's the director who a Sondheim director, interestingly, who has the entire cast play their own instruments. So there's no orchestra. The, the cast is the orchestra. That's the, the conceit of most of John Doyle's. Uh, so they reorchestrated the score in a really interesting way. Um, and I thought, like, that's that's an interesting doorway into this material, right? Like taking right. A, another sort of experimental, but Allegra was very theatrical. In some ways, it's, it really is about the kind of theatrical experience. So it's a fascinating show, but a hard show to love, an easy show yeah. to admire. Yeah. And yeah. I think Doyle, if I'm recalling, uh, turned it into a one act, no intermission. I think that's right. And got rid of the multiple dance sequences and just yeah. really focused on on a narrative through line making the greek chorus also function as the orchestra of the band right. and the, the band and and also all of the you know that all of the people in joe's life come in and out of the chorus so the core i mean the show is the, really kind of using that conceit of the chorus not as right. a, a sort of a, a dance ensemble that is a kind of monolith commenting on the action which i think is kind of how the original production worked but, you know, it's, it's a company of 12. They are the chorus. And then each, each individual in Joe's life steps out of the chorus to kind of play a certain role. 
Uh, and dramatically, I think that probably works, certainly for contemporary audiences. That's, that's a little more what we're used to seeing. And I wonder if the audiences, uh, whether the character of Joe, just to focus in on him mm -hmm. in late 1940s, were not really ready to see a man have a, a emotional breakdown or a vocational yeah. crisis on stage and have to reorient his whole life in a new direction a new by direction. the end of it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, so one of the one of the what the one of the critiques of Allegro, Agnes Mill sat down with with Rogers and Hammerstein and said, "What's the show about?" Hammerstein said, "It's about," or I think Rogers said, "It's about a guy who wants one thing and worldly pressures take him off of his game and he loses his soul." And Agnes Mill said, "Great, mm. that's not the show you've written." So the 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 reach of Allegro is it's as you said, right? It is it is meant to be a show about a crisis of vocation. It's, it's a show about a midlife crisis. It, it's company. Right. It's it's Bobby at thirty five, turning thirty five, and realizing yeah. what is my life about. I like I've I've made all these choices for other people. I've been trying to please my mother, my wife. Um, I've ended up in Chicago. I'm making big bucks. They're going to put me in charge of this hospital. They're going to name a wing after my, you know, and they're on the dais, right? Like at the, the final scene of the show, getting ready to receive this huge honor. He's the youngest head of surgery in Chicago history or something like that. And it, and the scene is not actually, I don't think it really works that well dramatically. He says something like, it's, it's, a, it's a delight for me to be a great ornament in the firmum. And then he kind of stops himself. He's like, ornament, ornament. And that becomes kind of the cue for this like, Oh shit! I am just an ornament in other people's lives, um, right. and there, in the moment, he, you know, he, I refuse the offer. I'm moving back to my small town, and I'm going to join my dad in the family practice and go back to really being a doctor again, which is really about like setting the legs of homeless people and you know being in people's lives, not helping neurotic wealthy women get to sleep. So chucks it mm. all. We assume abandons his wife, who's been cheating on him with the head of surgery, and this this whole other kind of subplot that doesn't actually go anywhere. Grabs Emily, who's the, the, the his secretary, who's been kind of, you know, longing after him. Whatever. The secretary. The secretary, yeah. So they, like, you know, <laughs> go fly off into the sunset to go work for, you know, for daddy's practice in, in the Midwest. So there, I mean, at, so at one level, right, at the level of kind of arc of story, it's like, that's a, you know, that's a kind of, I don't want to say conventional midlife crisis story, but that's a story that audiences recognize, right? A guy who right. realizes... I've made a bunch of little choices. They've led me to this place and I don't actually like the life I'm living. So I've got to make a change. It then also kind of pits like big city elegance and sophistication against pure country manners in a way that I think New York audiences in 1947 were like, you guys, you're doing the show downtown New York. Like, you know, don't make cities the bad, you know, I, I think dramatically that didn't work in 1947. And maybe to a certain degree still right. doesn't really work. It's it's painting in some uh, some pretty broad black and white brushstrokes that kind of feel a little, I don't, they just don't quite ring true, I think. Um, and glorifying the small town again. Yeah. I mean, are we are we longing to be in Iowa, in yeah. River City, you know, where the men are men and are women and the sheep are confused. And right. Yeah. Who don't know where they are. I mean, there is a kind of there's a weird there's a weird mama fixation at the center of Allegro. Mm. Right. Like his mother really represents something. You know, she's the first thing you see the, the curtain rises on Allegro and you see his mother, you know, having just given birth to Joe in bed. It's, a, you know, it's kind of, a, I think, an attempt to kind of recapture the iconic curtain riser of Oklahoma. Right. One woman alone churning butter and it broke open the Broadway traditions so of like, well, how do we do it again? I know the, the no overture overture. It'll just be the curtain rises on a 
simple woman, 1905, she's just given birth to her, her firstborn son. It's almost a kind of like a nativity kind of Madonna image. Um, so she dies early on after having tried to keep Joe from marrying this girl who's got ambitions and wants to like make him into something. She dies, but she keeps coming back into the show like as the kind of the voice of Joe's conscience, I think is the way this is kind of meant to go. And she's kind of... Like she's moralizing. She, you know, like she, she also has an agenda for Joe, right? Like she says, my father was a doctor. I married a doctor. You must be a doctor. And so for like the first part of the show, you're like, oh, this is a, this is a story about a guy who's going to get out underneath from underneath his mother's thumb, right? Like you, I feel like the show kind of sets you up to think this is going to be about Joe's emancipation from his mother's dream of what he must be. But by the end of the show, actually, what turns out is that like he goes back to mama's dream, like that Mm -hmm. all of her expectations for him get kind of recast as the lodestar. So it's not actually a, I mean, I don't find it kind of satisfying as a story about a guy who finds his center once again. He just kind of has a choice between his wife's expectations and his mom's expectations. She dies. He kind of follows his wife for a little while and then decides to go back home to mom. So it's Mm -hmm. not really about emancipation in that sense. Uh, It is about a kind of romantic chase of the rural. And and lots of what you're saying is making me think of Sunday in the Park with George and oh, the strong role of of mother and son, yeah. and especially with his ornaments, with Joe's yep. ornaments, George in Sunday in the Park, mm-hmm. uh, his his big song, putting it together, where it ends up with him saying, you know, you do all this work, paraphrasing it and putting it too pedestrian in a too pedestrian fashion, you do all this stuff so that your work can be on exhibition. Now, fortunately, his work, because it's art, there's a kind of transcendent quality because the piece, the painting becomes iconic. I mean, everybody knows this painting or most everybody knows this painting. Whereas returning to the small town for Joe and becoming again a family doctor is hardly the stuff that dreams or inspiring visions are made of. And and I wonder if Rodgers and Hammerstein are at their best when they seek to inspire. Yeah. And one of the things Allegro doesn't do. There's no climb every mountain in Allegro. Yeah, there is not a no, hymn you'll never walk alone. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, all of, I, I think, when I think about Rodgers and Hammerstein and their ability to do, I mean, what we would, what we call secular religion on stage, right? Like, that's, that's Hammerstein. That, I mean, I feel like that's all coming from Oscar Hammerstein, who is an unabashed sentimentalist and never met an inspiring bird song he didn't want to record as a lyric. <laughs> and, and so Allegro is his show, right? I mean, in some ways, like, it's probably the yeah. most, the most personal of their shows in terms of who Oscar Hammerstein was and his own kind of crisis of vocation, right? Like he's reached the apex of his career. He's making tons of money. And you get the sense that like, there's a deep sense of ambivalence around this, right? Like I didn't get into this business to make, now he was also descended from show business royalty and grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. So it's like, there's no, you know, and maybe that's why the, the whole kind of rural trope doesn't work. It's like Oscar Hammerstein, like you grew up in New York City, like you're a privileged New York kid. Like this, that isn't a real longing to return to something. It's an outsider's romanticized sense of a small town in Iowa that Oscar Hammerstein II has never spent more than a week in. Like, you, you know, come, right. come and live in River City for a week and we'll give you a very different sense. <laughs> of mama's purse strings in river city iowa so i mean like, i think right. that's a piece of why it feels like you know that's not that's not a thing that's a that's a fantasy but it is it is i i think the moral center of the show is this kind of very personally felt uh crisis of vocation for for hammerstein 
And yet there isn't, you know, like it's resolved at the end, but there isn't any moment where the audience is invited to kind of, I don't know, like connect with that experience. And I mean, right. Allegro needs Climb Every Mountain. It needs a character to come in in that moment where Joe is standing on the dais. Like, do I say yes to this golden right. ticket that's being offered me? Or do I chuck this whole bullshit life and go back to something pure? And you need the mother superior or the or his, I mean, it could be anybody. It could be his mother. It could be his grandmother. You need somebody to come out and sing, You'll Never Walk Alone, Climb Every right. Mountain. You, it needs- Or even anything. sing Oklahoma, even sing the title yeah, song. Oh God, which anything, in some ways- Anything. You know. <laughs> it just needs an 11 o'clock number. Like that's it structurally, it right? Like the show is missing number, a good 11 o'clock. It it, yeah, it could, be, it could be literally anything to make you feel yeah. something as an audience member. Yeah. Instead, it just kind of lands yeah. with a clod. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess he went back to Iowa. That's, you know, sucks for him. <laughs> Hmm. So I wonder what, uh, just as we come in for a landing here, what uh, what we learn about gospel. I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind as we've been talking about it, as you've been uh, opening it up, and I'm really grateful that we have the opportunity to talk about it, is the importance within, I think, the religious life of the moments of inspiration, which isn't to say that all of religious life is about inspiration. God knows most of following a spiritual path are mom long moments of boredom, even some moments of drought and uh, doubt and all that sort of stuff. But every now and then the clouds break, you get a an epiphany. We're recording this just before the Feast of the Epiphany. You get a, mm -hmm. a sense of the divine in your life. And gosh, it's enough to kind of keep you on the path for a while. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because in some ways, like, there's a piece of me that almost wants to argue against what I just said about how what would save Allegro would be a climb every mountain number, because there is there is something very honest to me about a show mm. that is about a crisis of vocation, which is an experience that I think many of us can resonate with, yeah. Yeah. that doesn't give you an epiphany moment, right? right? I mean, some way, now, at, at a certain level, it's like, you know, like you're doing a Broadway show, like, you know, like we go, we come to the, we come to the theater for epiphany moments because, because often we don't experience our lives that way. Right. right? Like right. I, you know, like I can think of a couple moments that I have like where something has shifted for me and looking back in hindsight, I tell the story of those moments as if they're epiphanies. And at a certain point, my telling of the story almost becomes the right. Like I create my own epiphanies in a certain way. But in our, I think for most of us in our lived experiences, like, yeah, as you say, like there may be a couple moments where, you know, things suddenly clarified for us in a, in a moment of utter clarity where you're like, okay, yes, right? It's this, not that, or like, this is the true thing or whatever. People who fall in love at first sight or whatever. Like, I, you know, I've talked with people who have had moments like that. I also talk with a lot of people who say, I've never had a moment like that. Right, right, and, and right. often it's phrased in the context of what am I doing wrong? Right. right. Like how right. what am I what am I messing up spiritually? Am I not connected to God enough? God doesn't talk to me in that way. Right. I mean, in the Christian tradition, you know, one of the ways that we frame epiphanies is it's it's when the voice of the divine comes upon you and sometimes audibly says stuff to you. Right. Like, and, right. and you know, I, I know people who have had that experience, too. I also know a lot of people who say God doesn't talk to me. I feel kind of alone down here. I don't get epiphanies. I, I yeah. wrestle day by day with a thousand tiny little decisions. And I know that they add up in certain kinds of ways, but I, I am not gifted with moments of clarity. And so there's something interesting to me about a show yeah. that in some ways illustrates that. And maybe Joe's great mo epiphany moment is ornament, right? Like yeah. 
it's not about it's not about recognition it's not about winning a prize yeah it's about doing what it is and maybe i'm putting too much here on what you really feel genuinely authentically called to do mm-hmm. country doctor if that's it yeah so there is this interesting you know moment I, I i marked it in the so my experience of 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 allegro is listening to the cast recording with the libretto in hand so i've not ever seen it it may be dramatically right. you can make an epiphany out of that in a way that the script doesn't capture there is an interesting exchange though when joe is getting ready to leave for chicago with his with you know kind of basically leaving his dad's country practice and his dad obviously has some you know some misgivings about that and his dad tells joe the story that i think actually kind of gets at what you're talking about right what is the what is the one true thing at the center of joe's experience and actually the reason it resonated with me is because I think it's it's an interesting way of thinking about the work that you and I do as clergy. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Mr. Taylor Sr., Dr. Taylor Sr. tells a story about Joe's grandfather. He says, one night I was about 14. I was out in the barn hitching the mare to your grandfather's sleigh. The grandfather's also a doctor. Grandfather had a bad chest cold, probably running a fever, but he was going to drive 12 miles through a blizzard on a call. And I asked him why. Asked him if, he, if it was because he loved people so much. He said, hell no didn't give a hoot about them, didn't really like anybody till after he had done something for them. After that, he figured he had a stake in them. And then the dead mother's ghost comes on stage and, uh, and Joe says, I see what you mean. And the mother says, of course you do. They're your people after you've helped them. So that mm-hmm. becomes, I, and I thought, oh, what an interesting way of thinking about doctoring, right? Mm-hmm. Especially the kind of experience of country yeah. doctor. It's not that Joe's grandfather loved people. Joe's grandfather was probably a jerk. But once he'd set a leg, once he delivered a baby, once he'd helped Mrs. Whatever with her gout, he was invested in those people. And then right. it wasn't it wasn't that he well, I, I sort of sort of, like that's that was the way that, that that country doctor learned to love people. Right. Not out of mm. some kind of pure affection or compassion, but by doing things for other people and then investing them. So that becomes, I think, for Joe, kind of the lodestar. Right. Like I need to be in a community it's not that I love those people, but that I've worked so hard on kind of with them and I'm invested in their lives in a certain way. That's what he yeah. wants. And I, yeah. that resonated with me because I, I often sort of feel like, you know, I almost sometimes feel like a fraud of a priest sometimes because I actually don't really like people either. I hate standing right. in the doorway making chit chat. I'm not a natural people person. I'm a deeply introverted jerk. Um, but, I, but I recognize what I think Joe's grandfather is talking about. Right. Like once you've sat right. with people, once you've yeah. buried somebody's spouse, once you've yeah. done marriage counseling with a couple, once you've baptized somebody's baby, yeah. you're invested in their life. Yeah. So that is a kind yeah. of love, but it's not a feeling based love. It's not because I like you. It's, I don't know. It's something a little more visceral almost, um, yeah. that I, I yeah. actually found really compelling as a, as a way of thinking about, uh, the helping professions. And, and yeah. what it means to love people. Yeah, yeah. And what it means to in, invest in people in yeah. a certain way. Because I, I mean, I, I don't think uh, you might, you may, you are probably introverted. You're not a jerk as far as I can tell. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> but it's because I, I do like you, Peter, so you don't get to see my tricky side. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something uh, there. I mean, just when you're talking about that kind of experience of pastoral ministry of, um being with a bereaved family or uh, uh, being with a couple in the midst of separation or that sort of stuff that gives, you know, it's, it, it's, 
uh, just to quote Canadian Leonard Cohen, you know, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. I know that's got tired and cliched. I don't really ever want, I've, I promised myself I'd not use it in a sermon. I think I got through <laughs> almost 40 years only using it once, but it, it's that sort of thing because when, when you see someone vulnerable, then, you know, John Wesley's, this heart is strangely moved. Yeah. Uh, we connect with the humanity. And I think it's I think it's what makes us love Billy Bigelow, makes some of us even love Judd from Oklahoma, certainly uh, Cable in South Pacific being so yeah. tragically torn between his life at home and what he's what he's learning in the South Pacific and so forth. It's, I think, what makes us love uh, Captain Von Trapp, who could have mm -hmm. everything uh, with the Baroness, your favorite character, I know, but instead chooses this nun, you know, yeah. to, to shack up with. Chooses this nun <laughs> who, who this makes clothes nun. out of curtains. <laughs> it's yeah. it's in the vulnerability. And I mean, that's yeah. so deeply Christian, I guess. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That's and I think it would be kind of, kind of coming full circle. That's why Allegro doesn't work for me, right? Those characters are yeah. very rarely do you get, and, and it's because, you know, they're in a musical and they don't sing about their vulnerability. And that's what, yeah. that's what I, you know, like there are tons of musicals that I like where that's, I mean, you know, you can have an entertaining night at the theater, but I go to Rodgers and Hammerstein for songs that connect me to these characters because that's a song that connects me to myself, right? Like I think that's right. the that's the vulnerability dynamic in the in a theatrical context and maybe out of it too. When we when we when we are with some, when we are privileged to be with someone who is letting themselves letting you see something that's deep and true and real. It's not it's I mean it's a it's an incredible privilege, it's an incredible beautiful thing. It also connects you with that part of yourself, right? Like, oh, I'm not alone. Right. Uh, you're right. a jerk. Oh, I'm a jerk too, right? Okay, right. we can we can we can connect over that part of us. Um, and well, I, think I think that's, that's what the we... power of. And that's the power of Hamilton. Yeah, I mean, it's not just about the founding fathers. It's not just about. It's about this, and we'll get to this when we talk about Hamilton in a few episodes. But it's the deeply flawed, vulnerable character of Alexander Hamilton, uh, conflicted in every way, talks too much works too fast, uh, writes too hard, ignores his family, has an affair, gives his son bad advice. I mean, not to go into Hamilton, but it's all that that makes, that it's part of the ingredient that makes Hamilton so compelling. Yeah. So very compelling. And, and that's, I mean, it's, it's sort of key to the way that we, I mean, the whole conceit of this podcast, right? Like that, that when, when we're, when we're going looking for the gospel in musical theater, I think, and maybe this is an unfair lens to take, but it, you know, it's a lens that I think many of us, do. we're looking for stories that connect us to people because at, at some level or another, we're looking for redemption stories, right? Like that's the, that's the stock and trade stories. that we work in. I, that's what I want to see in a, in a theater. And, and, I, and I'm very open to what redemption looks like, right? Um, and I think that's why musical theater becomes such a fun place to look for it, because it doesn't have to look like a traditional faith story. In fact, in some ways, it's, they're more powerful if they don't look like a traditional faith story, because then we learn to see redemption in all kinds of interesting, creative, funky, weird, inappropriate ways. That, to me, feels like something that sounds like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why I think that musicals are so much fun. So I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you encouraged this conversation because I didn't think we had much to say about Allegro. Yes, but... well, thank you for indulging me on wanting to nerd out <laughs> no. a little bit on Allegro, which is, I just, I, I, think, I, I think it's a fascinating show. And as, as we've, I mean, I, I, I imagine we may return to Allegro when we start talking about Stephen Sondheim because it really does seem like so. a pretty significant show in terms of his 
early formative influences and in, in, in many ways. Like I think reading Sondheim's stuff through the lens of Allegro is a really interesting way to think about what he thinks he's doing. But yeah, for and all we'll kinds of reasons. We'll be sure to put in the notes some ways for listeners to. Yes. So there is one, the only, the only resource that I have been able to find in terms of actually experiencing something, there's, you know, there's no recordings of the original Broadway production. It's almost never done. So there's no videos of a production of it. There is a recording that exists of a radio theater production of it from the 50s that actually includes a number of the original company members um so it's about as close as you can get to the original broadway company they did a, a radio drama version of it that the theater guild was doing so we'll post a link to that in the um in the show notes because there's a really there's an interesting conversation too with a, a dramaturg and the host of the podcast before they start the recording about allegro what works what doesn't work who rogers and hammerstein were and what they were trying to accomplish with the show so it's a it's a great it's a great podcast and then a kind of an interesting way of experiencing the at least the score and some of the some of the story of Allegro through through the means of radio. My guest has been Nathan LaRude, the uh, <laughs> dean of Trinity Cathedral, Portland, uh, Oregon, yes. and former former um, Richard Rogers impersonator and lifelong <laughs> Richard Rogers we'll, and Oscar Hammerstein nerd. <laughs> and we'll pick this up next time we see you. Yep. Until then, bye bye bye. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.